So, the first sequel slash part two episode we've done uh, took us like what nine episodes, and we're 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 doing our first I don't know series two part series two part series of uh, of a topic, and it was completely unintentional. Uh, neither of us planned to do this, but we got so carried away on the legal side of the abortion debate that we completely left out the other stuff we wanted to talk about. So instead of, I don't know, just skipping it, we we decided that we wanted to do a part two and kind of get the rest of our thoughts out. I know you have a lot of thoughts and I I have a lot of thoughts. This is one of the most hotly debated topics in the country. I was going to say right now, but it's really been raging for almost 50 years at this point. But I think we're years, right? What in Roe v. Wade 71? Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. You would know better than me. Yeah, se- yeah, ish. We're we're close. <laughs> if it's not fifty years, we're close. So, yeah, we we I think we did a really good job on the legal side of things, and I liked where I think both of us decided we we liked where our debate went. We just weren't expecting it to take up the entire hour. Yeah. Uh, so now this is this is our chance to kind of get the rest of our thoughts out and hopefully after this episode we won't have uh after the episode we hope to settle the debate for everybody. Yes. Definitively. The the book on the abortion debate will be closed after after this episode. We may uh, get the presidential medal of freedom after this. <laughs> yeah. Um no, no aim higher man. This is Nobel Peace Prize territory. <laughs> Uh, but we're the OVO Deep State Podcast. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, which was main topic, the Texas abortion law that went into effect, uh, but also we discussed just the legal side of abortion in general, go ahead and listen to that. That's the episode eight directly before this one. This will be episode nine. Uh, I don't have a cool title yet. It's just abortion part two, uh, but I'll think something. I think of something up. Uh, I'm... Jake, I'm at the rake, but the A is a four on Twitter. My co-host is Thomas at Thomas Black underscore eighty six on Twitter, and the show's Twitter is at OVO Deep State. We, well, Thomas is mostly political postings and religious postings. I'm a plethora and sports. You do sports. You were a big Liberty fan. We don't want to forget that. But I heard this weekend you were a big Liberty fan. Yeah, I was. It was real fun watching them lose. <laughs> uh but yeah i've posted a lot of video game stuff i have another podcast called the ovo gaming show on twitter with a different co-host we were discuss video games way less way less serious even though we're kind of silly on this podcast too but check that one out and we are going to dive right in this week we're not going to do small talk we 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 have a lot to say i feel i think this is going to probably not go too far over an hour, but I just wanted to start off the show this week with stuff we agree on just to set like a base level. Like we're not, we're not all that different in what our end goals are when we discuss abortion. Uh, I know we were kind of bantering about this last night before bed. I'll just say, I know we, you kind of disagreed with the first point because it isn't as nuanced and I'm fine with that. But I think both of us in a perfect world would want abortions as close to zero as possible. And we should we should work our way towards that goal. I think that is a I think we have that as a similar goal 
the way to get there, we're, we definitely disagree. But would you agree that the the health, health policy of the country should work towards getting abortions to zero? Yeah, I think it would be a good thing if getting abortions towards zero was a consideration and a point of debate for health policy. Okay. Um, and just, you know, for lack, lack of ambiguity, you know, so we avoid ambiguity. Like Jake is very much more government has a stronger role in healthcare and health policy. I am on the other end of that debate, which we won't get into today, but that's why <laughs> it was so like tense in the wording of what we actually agreed to. Sure. But, I, I didn't necessarily mean we're going to get this. We're already off on a tangent on, on the tangent. first we're already off on a, a healthcare tangent. I didn't necessarily mean government, but like the like I didn't mean like law, but like the policy, right? We can have a policy of this is what we want, this is what we prefer. Um but yeah, regardless of that, regardless of how we get there. Yeah. I think I think both of us would pref- want healthcare has a role to play in getting abortions towards zero. Yes. And, and when I say had I had to really try not to go off on tangent. When I said health policy, I didn't necessarily mean laws or the healthcare policy of the United States. Just in general, the policies that um, I guess policy was the wrong term to use, but yeah, whatever. We we both would like the abortion number to be as close to zero as possible. Definitely have different ways of going about that. We definitely disagree on how to go about that. Do you agree that making abortions illegal won't stop some women from having abortions? Yes, I agree with that. Okay. I think you said you already agreed with this one. We might have to change the wording of point three. So I'll just go skip skip to point four. It's impossible to stop unwanted pregnancies from from happening from premarital intercourse and or practicing unsafe sex without contraception. Oh, yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. So the third one, we got to switch the wording around. But I think basically what I'm saying is that adoption should be a lot easier on both sides of facilitating unwanted pregnancies to turn them into adoptions. And on the other end, making it easier for obviously vetted parents who want to adopt a child to get a child into a good home. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and not trying to overthink it too much and the different processes by which adoptions occur. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we'd both agree that more information for everybody about adoption and making the process as administratively simple um, without being careless. Yeah, I, I would agree. That would be that would be a good thing in a a relevant uh, factor in trying to minimize abortions. And I'm not sure you're obviously the expert in this arena because you have gone through the process of fostering and adopting. Would you consider it on the easier side or on the harder side of all that administrative work, all the, I mean, obviously adopting three kids is hard in general. Uh, I just meant like dealing with, the the agency dealing with whatever you had to deal with in order to get those kids like was that an easy process or a hard process you think um so once the parental rights were terminated and 
the the legal system um, went through its process to terminate parental rights of the biological parent, the actual adoption process was very easy. Um, very easy. Everybody was helpful. Um, no, no issues or concerns there. Everything before that was very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I don't, again, we're going off on a, I'm going off on a tangent. I think the legal side of it is important and it needs to be squared away. Right. I don't, I don't know enough about adoption to say this, but I mean, I'm from the point of view of like a mother has an unwanted pregnancy and gives it up for adoption immediately. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, per, that, that child is put into the system from birth. Uh, I'm not sure what that process is like. Your process is a little bit different, I guess, because of the parental rights issue. Yeah. Yeah. We went through foster care. Yeah. So, so, and honestly, I'm not, um, I, I think, and I could be wrong on this, but I think if the mother, uh, the biological mother, when she's pregnant, is like, hey, I want to give this child up for adoption, um, I think there are usually agencies that will talk to her and um, have usually um, a number of parents kind of in the system of that agency, uh, prospective parents at least, that, hey, I want to adopt, um, we would like to be matched, and then the biological mother will kind of read information on them, um, possibly meet them, and then make a decision. Um, so I don't, I, again, I don't know how difficult that process is or how the details of it. Um, I think some of the, ch- I don't say challenge, I think some of the issue is just getting informa- getting information um, to biological mothers who, who are in a situation in life where they may not be able to raise their child and they recognize that, and also prospective uh, parents, um, adoptive parents, um, getting them information about about adoption, um, how to, how to um, pursue it, um, and what the process looks like. I, I think even in our experiences, people... Um, just have a lot of questions for us and, and a lot of just, um, you know, how did this happen? What's the process like? Things like that. And perhaps if more people understood the process, um, especially prospective mothers, uh, I'm sorry, biological mothers who, who, you know, know they can't raise the child, perhaps it would be more often considered, um, on their end and abortions would not be as, as prevalent. To continue on this tangent, do you, I guess I'll start with this. Do you think we need incentives to, to incentivize people to adopt children in the, the system? I think I'd be hesitant to go there. Um, I, I think that could end up doing well-intentioned harm. Um, okay. Where the pursuit is not to love and raise a child, but to uh, the child is the means to the end. Um, having said that, um, and I, at least I know through foster care, um, when you adopt out of foster, which so when you foster, you get a, uh, a stipend, um, just to, uh, help with the kind of immediate influx and financial need that your family has now. Um, and if you adopt out of the foster care system, at least in most states, that stipend continues, um, at least until the child's 18. So... 
I don't know if the same, um, maybe for lack of a better word, assistance. I don't know if that same assistance happens when you adopt um, without going through the foster care system. Um, but but I, I think from, from what we learned in training, at least, I think a lot of people um, would say that, oh, I would consider adoption, but I can't afford it. So I think if there was more knowledge on um, the financial aspects and any, any financial support or aid um, that might be offered, um, that might be one obstacle that uh, could be cleared and limit the number of abortions just because more people would say, hey, I would be willing to, now that, now that we know we have a little bit, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month to be able to help with, you know, with this, because, you know, obviously if, if, you know, a couple um, only had biological children, um, there's kind of a gradual increase in your, your household budget. Right. Whereas often when you adopt, there's a pretty significant steep increase that, that the stipend can help with. And, and if it exists outside of the foster care system, um, that might be beneficial. Yeah, I think, I think we de- you definitely run into. It. I, I think I've heard or read stories about people who foster kids. Basically, I don't want to say like to make money, but like they they do the bare minimum to get the stipend for each child, and mm-hmm. that's how they get most of their income. Uh, I, I guess yeah, you can't really incentivize with money that way. But I, I, maybe incentive is a is a bad, the wrong word to use. But like, what if the state paid for that child's health care up until they were eighteen or something like, 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 like what the stipend is doing to like offset costs? Like, basically, like, okay, you adopt this child, any health, you know, any health issues, it's on the state; they'll cover that, or uh, you know, uh, whatever school, public school lunches are 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 free for that child, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and those are the kind of things that are in place in foster care. Um, now, I will say what what makes that a little easier is that foster care is run by a single state. But when you start talking about adoptions outside of the foster care system, um, it's it's not uncommon right. for the parents to be in one state, um, for the biological mother to be in a different state, and then you just figure, you know, I, I think it would be there'd be some level of complexity on which state helps with the child. Whereas in foster care, it's much easier to, I mean, there's no question on that. So. Yeah, I guess at that point it'd be a federal thing. And I know you're not a big fan of creating more government, more bureaucracy, but maybe that's something uh, that a federal adoption agency could handle. Yeah. I mean, it would definitely have to be, I would almost think it would have to be at the federal level. Um, if you want to keep the adoption process similar to what it is now, where state boundaries don't don't particularly play a big big role. Yeah. Well, we've spent <laughs> way more time than I intended because I think it's a fascinating topic. Uh, I I haven't looked into adoption. It's something that we've discussed. I don't want to say flippantly, but not seriously uh, as something as an option for us. And as you've gone through the actual foster care system and adopted. Uh, just kind of a, I think there's an interesting, you know, that was an interesting tangent for me. 
because I really don't know what the adopt- adoption process is like. I just see the numbers like, you know, I'm going to make up a number, but like 50,000 kids are waiting to be adopted or anytime you see a commercial for that sort of thing. I think your your idea of getting the information out there. And again, for me, I don't, I don't even know what the process is like, how easy or hard it is, how much it's going to cost me in order to, to adopt. You know, I see, I, I know I see numbers like, Oh, it costs $50,000 to adopt a child, but I, that's probably on the high end or in special circumstances, but whatever, whatever it takes. I, I definitely think that adoption should be a viable strat, a viable alternative. And it should be as painless on both sides as possible because. So, so would you kind of with, 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 I guess that thought, would you agree? Like, cause some states will try to pass laws that would say, Hey, before a, a biological mother gets an abortion, she should have all of her options um, explained to her to include adoption. And a lot of times those die in state houses because of Democrats that would say, this is shaming a mother. This is guilting her. Um, this puts an undue burden on her right to privacy to have an abortion. And, and that, that's where, that's where it often dies. So would you agree that that's Do I think, not, not the best so option? I will, I will give you my honest opinion. I think a lot of those laws are bad faith to delay the abortion until they're at a point where the women aren't legally allowed to have them anymore. If, if the law said, would you hand a woman a, abortion pamphlet you have to hand her an adoption pamphlet too and that's the end of it sure i put that burden on the provider they can say they made an honest attempt to educate both sides of the issue do i think law i don't think laws where you have to set an appointment and go talk with a with an adoption counselor and go through all your options or whatever i don't i again i think those are generally bad faith attempts Mm -hmm. at, at delaying the process in order to to get them to the point where they're not legally even allowed to have the abortion anymore. And but adoption would like be their Planned own parenthood, For instance, if it was like, hey, Planned Parenthood uh, counselors have to be able to, you know, explain both sides, the abortion side and the adoption option. Or um, if you're going to put the burden, for- if you're going to put the burden on the provider, I am less, I am less against it. However, I have not looked into it enough to know what these laws say and specifically require. Mm-hmm. But in general, just off the bat, with a general, again, if if all if if all they if what it basically amounts to is you have to do something that's not, you have to set a separate appointment. You have to come in a certain like a lot of. We're gonna get into the debate, but seventy five percent of women who had abortions in twenty fourteen were poor or low income. Poor or low income people generally don't have PTO and time off work or time away from their families. They, they work multiple jobs. They don't have this time to be going to these multiple appointments. And again, I think a lot of it is bad faith effort in order to, to delay the abortion long enough to make it into that illegal range in every state, uh, not just places like Texas. So it's hard for me to separate the two, but I think in general, yes, if you're going to put it on the provider and say, Hey, you at least have to mention abortion and uh, explain the process, however long that takes. But if it's, you mean adoption when you said that? Sorry, yes, adoption. But stuff like where you have to come in for a separate appointment and get what what would they do? I I think Virginia had a law or was that was a thing that they were putting through the state house a, a while ago, where you have to go and get like a fetal heartbeat and listen to the fetal heartbeat and all this stuff. Like all that stuff is just delayed tactics, in my opinion. Uh, the actual 
benefit of that is not for the pregnant woman, in my opinion. No, yeah, and, and I hear where you're coming from, but yeah, but, but you wouldn't, assuming it was a good faith argument and assuming it was um, efficient for for the mother in, in the sense of, you know, not adding extra appointments and stuff, you would, you would be in favor of equal exposure of all options. I wouldn't go in f- as far as saying I'd be in favor of it. I would vote for it for sure, but I would be more willing to listen to that. Uh, I would have less of a problem with that. Yes. If it, again, it's as long as it's not undue burden on the actual uh, person seeking help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more willing to listen to that. I think, but I, I think a lot of instances it's not, it is an undue burden. Gotcha. But let, I mean, we're, we already kind of got into it. Uh, I just wanted to throw some facts. I'll use quotation marks because a lot of the numbers are hard to pin down. Uh, which is crazy. I think that we probably should know how many, I mean, the CDC has numbers, but a lot of, uh, a lot of numbers are done by Dr. Fauci and he's making them up. Yeah. Fricking Fauci. (laughs) A problem is, is it's really hard to get like good data because a lot of the studies are done by survey and a lot of women don't want to admit they've had an abortion or, uh, don't like, there are some surveys that are long-term surveys and they wanted to see women who got an abortion versus women who ended up keeping the child, like how, how that went and how that uh, affected their lives going forward. But when you're doing it by survey, how many respondents actually stick with the long-term stuff? It's hard to find people. Again, a lot of these women are poor or low income. So it's not, you don't normally stay in one place for very long. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the a lot of the data is fuzzy to say the least, but stuff we do know based on CDC data, abortions have peaked in 1981 and they've steadily been dropping since 1981 down to 11.3 abortions per 1,000 women as of 2018. Uh, I think 1981 was almost double that, so we've we've steadily declined. The abortion rate, which is good. I saw some studies, but I don't know how good they are, is that states that had stricter abortion laws didn't really affect the abortion rate. They it, they basically remain constant for the most part. 51% of abortion pay, patients, again, these are done by survey, not, there's no other way to really quantify this other than surveying but according to 51 percent of abortion patients they were using contraception during the month of conception and as far as when when abortions typically occur 91.1 percent of all abortions happen at or before the 13th week of pregnancy so those are just some facts that i had found during my research i know we're going to go more into a biological debate uh, and maybe some religious debates, but I just wanted to have the facts of who's really getting abortions when they're really like late term abortions are incredibly rare. They're outlawed in I'm pretty sure every state, depending on what your definition of late term is. Uh, and you just recently beca- passed that, that late term late term abortions um, were legal. Um, and I want I mean, it definitely, I'm almost positive third trimester and I think it was just weeks away from delivery. Sure. It's exceedingly rare. Oh yeah. Definitely the minority of states, but yes, uh, I, I don't, I don't, 
I would have to look at the New York law, but yeah, it's definitely not a, a wide held law anywhere. Uh, nobody really agrees on late term abortions, but it's very, again, exceedingly rare that it a happens or that it's legal in a state. But yeah, so where do you, where do you think we should start? Where do you want to start? I, I might've thrown out, I don't know, bias statistics, but I think I just wanted, I, I found these, I thought these were some interesting statistics when I was uh, doing some research on this topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think we can, to some degree, we can kind of just recap, um, you know, the, the judicial precedent and the opinion of Roe v. Wade, um, because of the three things they, they discussed that, that led to the outcome of their opinion, they mentioned um, basically that the attorneys did not make a, or really attempt to make a viable case that prenatal life is the same uh, from a medical standpoint as postnatal life. And, and, and even the opinion said, if you did this, or if in the future you do this, we have to reconsider our stance. Um, so it, in every abortion case argued to overturn precedent, they told you how to do it. Um, so with that, that's where the debate has to go uh, moving forward. Um, so I think I hinted at this last time, but depending on how you categorize and subcategorize um, different properties of life, they're generally anywhere from five to seven properties of life. This is how biologists would define if an organism is living or not. Um, I did the seven uh, just because I'm naturally an overachiever. Um, (laughs) So you have properties of life, you have order, which in in that just means cellular order, how the cells constructed uh, properly to function, sensitivity and response to stimuli, um, reproduction at the cellular level, growth and development, uh, regulation such as nutrient transport, um, uh, maintaining homeostasis, and energy processing. So being able to take in nutrients, being able to secrete waste, um, those are the, the biologically the properties of life. Um, and at conception, those properties exist. Um, so if at conception, those properties exist, <clears throat> and this is for the sake of argument, say, if not at conception, they say they don't all exist at conception, but at six weeks, they exist. At that point, it is a life. The responsibility of the government is to protect life. Therefore, even the life of the prenatal child or fetus should be protected. And I think that's that's ultimately where you have to start the debate when you determine what the government's responsibilities are um, with regards to protecting rights, specifically right to life, is when is it alive? And I would argue at conception, it would be alive. I don't know if we're going to get far in this part of the debate because we're going to, it's going to be a semantic argument. The, the definition of life means different things. There are many, there are many living organisms within your own body right now that would fit the definition of, of life that aren't, I don't know, a a baby or that aren't, they don't qualify for 
can I help you? Can I, can I? <laughs> please, right, please so, help you know, me. And also, it's, it's biology, right? It's the study of all living things. Um, sure. Grass is life. Plants are life. They, they have the components of a living organism. Right. Is that, I, what you, I, that what you... Yes, but we can we can even we can even narrow it down to human life. But that's not the life that we're talking about in biology has a very strict definition, which you've done a good job of of uh, defining. The life that we're talking about in the Constitution is not that's not what they were talking about. That's they weren't talking about the biological definition of life. That that would be a radical departure from. A radical departure from the, the the normal understanding of what life is, much like the historical context of what life is. I think we kind of touched on this in the last episode, but for most of human history, life wasn't life didn't begin until you were born, and we don't. And I don't mean this in a religious context. I mean this as a as mm-hmm. a historical human context to again if we want to have an amendment i don't don't want to get in the legal argument again if we want to have get an amendment that defines what life is and that life begins at those seven properties you described and human or human life begins at those seven properties you just described at protection excuse me at conception not protection people who are pro-choice wouldn't have a legal argument in my opinion if you define life as literally those seven properties of biology and you say at conception the zygote is a human life now and it must be protected legally that's one thing but you we can't rewrite the definitions of the common understanding of what the framers of the constitution meant at the time nor can we ignore the thousands of years of history of i mean i think even when in some certain circumstances, they believed a baby was quote unquote alive when they could feel it move. Mm-hmm. That is still way later than conception. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand. I, I, I don't want to, I, I think it, I, I, we don't argue in bad faith. I know you don't, you're not trying to make a weasel loophole argument. I think that from the biological definition of life, if that's the one you want to go with, we need to codify that in the Constitution. Currently, I would say that that is not the case. That is not what the framers meant. So if that's not what the framers meant and they didn't say, and this is why we're in the quagmire we're in, the framers didn't explain what they meant by by what they consider life. They weren't, they didn't give us a clause about abortions in the constitution so now we're stuck trying to figure it out ourselves and again i don't want to we can we can have the biological definition of life but we also need to understand that that's not that wasn't the intent so we need to come to some kind of shared agreement on on when a human fetus becomes a entity protected under the constitution you've laid out the biological argument that's not a strong enough argument for me given i don't want to repeat myself for the third time but given what i've just said i don't think that that the biological definition is what the framers meant so yeah so so a couple of things you know i, I would actually disagree that um you, you kind of made a statement um 
you know, for thousands of years, we've uh, defined life as such. I mean, I think if you, so we have like our Hippocratic Oath, right? But that Dr. Sorrow, sure. um, that actually comes from Greek uh, medical doctor slash philosopher, because all the Greeks were philosophers, um, comes from Hippocrates. And his stance on this was that prenatal life is life. He was disagreed with by, by about half of, of Greek uh, population. Um, but if you kind of trace the argument of when life begins, um, for I think around three, at least 3000 years or so, um, there's been debate, there's been uncertainty at least, um, in in that argument. Um, so I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say, um, that life has always been thought of as postnatal. The, the second point I would make is, um, and I guess I want to ask the question to make sure I understood, but you kind of referenced, you know, you can't change um, meanings of words um, if they did not mean this and the constitution, you know, when the framers originally, is that correct? Yeah, for lack of, I mean, go ahead and make your point, and I'll disagree if I don't like where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> I need to, I need to make, make sure I understand your point. So yeah, yes, for lack of a better term, I'm an originalist in this point of view that when they, I'm not an original, an originalist on all or most things, but I think in this point of view, when we're discussing certain definitions. Like, we don't have a glossary for the Constitution of where they define exactly what they mean for the words they use. But in general, at the time when they were writing the Constitution, they weren't they weren't thinking life began at conception, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, certainly every instant, and again, this was in, in the opinion of Irby Wade um, and, and in several uh, opinions um, after that. Uh, regarding abortion, but they, they only speak of life in a postnatal context. Um, but I would also argue that um, there are several instances where what was written in the Constitution um, was proven to be errant thought. I mean, the most obvious example is uh, the, the way our Constitution speaks of black people. Um, of course. There was clearly error in um, the thinking of the day, um, or at least absolute error in the treatment of black people in the day and, and not giving treatment, um, fair treatment of the law because you're still sure. an equal person. Um I think I think we went down this road in the last episode. A bit. And this and way I don't you want to go down this constitutional amendment. Yeah, right. I that's I, again. I don't agree that. Here's what I'll say. I agree with you that according to biology, a zygote that is fertilized fits your definition. Maybe not immediately, but within a couple of weeks, fits your definition of of the biological definition of life. I don't think that's controversial. What's yeah. controversial is does that is that biological definition of life what they meant in the Constitution when they were protecting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? 
Yeah, no, and I get what I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. I, I think that again, with with out assuming bad faith, I think that's more of a loophole. And if you want to I think you can use that argument to make laws like the Texas law. Uh but I don't think they really stand up to the scrutiny you would want. Again, Roe v. Wade was kind of a, a, a band-aid fix. It didn't really comment on this particular I mean it didn't comment at all on this particular subject, to be honest. But it was a privacy issue, not a life issue, basically, a definition of life issue. If you want to do that and you want it to be the law of the land, it needs to be an amendment. And you need to define it so that there is no ambiguity. So, again, I think we kind of went down this road in the last podcast. I I don't, again, I don't like the, the, the biological debate as far as the definition of life is concerned. I It is more interesting to me if we talk about what defines i guess i guess <laughs> it's hard to for to argue about this if you're going to start at conception then there's no debate for you that that's like there's no difference between conception or 20 weeks for me there's a huge difference and i think that that terminating a pregnancy i'll say the 13th week prior to the 13th week is a lot closer to taking an antibiotic and killing off an infection than it is to murdering a human being. I don't think, I don't necessarily think those that's a, that's a, that's a, a heavily drawn line. There's probably the morality and ethics of it. There's, there's, there's shades of it, but I, I think if we were putting it on a chart, it's much closer to taking an antibiotic to kill off an effect, taking a vaccine to, to stave off a pandemic it's way closer to that than it is to murder i think that's a huge leap to make okay so a number of things that, that yeah <laughs> so so all right so to kind of go back to your reference of constitutional amendment based off understanding you know the reason we had to do that with slavery and um specifically speaking to the rights of african americans is because the constitution itself um clearly and emphatically subjugated sure. them and the constitution is what governs the nation sure so you have to amend it to correct for mistakes yeah we, we abortion talk about um was not spoken of um at all so it wasn't a it wasn't a clear and emphatic stance in the constitution that women will have the right to abortion and if it was you would definitely have to amend it um the law the law of the land has um, primarily hinged on court decision. So understanding, I guess, understanding that um, the necessity for an amendment isn't as clear and convincing as let's say it would be for the 14th, 15th and 16th amendments because we had to change what was explicit. Now, the reason I think the biology argument is the necessary argument to make is because, um, you know, Justice Blackmun, um, when he penned the, opinion, the majority opinion of the court, it was stated, this is the case you did not make. You did not make the case that prenatal life is the same as postnatal life. Therefore, 
we cannot say the Constitution demands protection for the prenatal life because the only life we have is written with the context of postnatal. And they even said, if this case was made, then we have to revisit this. So right. the, the case for objectively and not subjectively defining and defending life needs to be made. And the only way you can make that, I think, is with the biological argument, because that's the objective truth that, that um, clearly distingu distinguishes life from non-life. Now, the reason it would not be the same as, let's say, killing off other living organisms, um, such as uh, a virus, is because we have DNA. DNA would clearly say this isn't a virus, this isn't a plant life or an animal life. This is clear and convincing without, without any wavering human life. And because it's human life, according to Roe v. Wade, this is the argument that you make. And this is the, the protection that, uh, this is the, this is the entity that needs to be protected by the government, um, and, and rights. There's not a hierarchy of any this is and, and one last thing, and I'm not going to put this on you, but um, Mr. Secretary Clinton was running for president, I think the last time, I think it was during the, the uh, 2016 election. It may have been 2012. Um, but she went on to serve the view and she admitted, yes, this child is this prenatal life is life, but the rights of that life are inferior to the rights of the mother. That's ridiculous. And I'm not saying that's your stance, but that's a ridiculous stance. We don't have a hierarchy of who has all the rights and who has minimal rights when it comes to the government's protection of life, liberty, property. So uh, to me, that was just, I'm not saying that's your argument, but that thought of some people have, you know, all rights to be protected with regards to life, liberty, property, and others don't, that's... I mean, that's a very similar line of thinking that, that held slavery in its place for years is there are some some people that don't get rights. Sure. How is it different if you get in an accident and you're on your brain dead, but you're on life support and your wife is allowed to pull the plug on you? Uh, making the, the the kind of sentience argument. Not necessarily a sentience argument, but like, how is it different? Like, your, <clears throat> yeah, you have rights, but yep. your wife is allowed to without a, because you can't live without assistance. She's allowed to end that assistance, and your life would be extinguished. Yeah, so I think the biggest difference would be um, the intent there is to do no harm to the life, you know, and, and there's nobody that would know better than what I mean. The, ending ending your life is doing harm to it, is it not? So, so but no, but the, but the argument I'm making is um, there are many people who would rather die than be in that state indefinitely. Sure. So it's, it, it would be much more similar to a um, conscience, conscience patient saying, I'm signing this DNR. Um, and I am, I have the, sure. the mental capacity to make this reasonable choice. And since you can't get that consent from the living patient, 
Um, you, you, Not the, the only option you have is next kin. Now, if the pay, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, if the patient has it uh, documented, I do not want this to happen. I don't think the wife can say, eh, he was kidding." Like so, so you you make the decision to the best of your ability that is in the best interest of the one who is in need of support. To, to right, but but we also don't say that your wife is killing you, right? You. All she's doing, you have to, you're relying on something to live as mm-hmm. an assist it, that is outside your own control, your own body. And she is ending that support. Yeah. So, I, I and, think, then, and then you pass away of whatever natural causes mm-hmm. were keeping you in that. Like you, you couldn't breathe or whatever without mechanical assistance. So she, again, she's not murdering you. She is just no longer providing you with the, System, system that that yeah require that keeps you alive quote unquote and yeah. and i like I, the this isn't the perfect one-to-one example but i think that it's similar enough to where we can have a conversation about it and again i i can't imagine that the majority of people have it have actual uh wills let alone dnrs and such uh filled out prior to getting in a, a random accident that puts them in that situation Clearly, if you have pre-accident directions about whether you want to be on life support or not, then I don't agree that legally your wife can't do anything. But this, we're talking about a situation where you're on life support and she has power of attorney and full control of whatever happens to you. I'll let you respond to that. But one thing I wanted to say about your previous argument, I think... First of all, we said you were talking about viruses and not having DNA. We don't consider viruses alive, but bacteria we consider alive. Bacteria has DNA. I just I wanted to clear Fair that point. up. Not not that it matters. It's that's a very minor point. Uh, just because we're in a very uh, anti sciency part of our uh, country right now with the pandemic, but yeah, I'll let you respond to that. That was just one thing that that I wanted to correct. Yeah, that. yeah. So so I think the biggest difference it, it would be um, similar to a patient that let's say gets cancer or gets cancer again and chooses to let the natural consequences of cancer run their course instead of going through what they might describe as the torture of chemotherapy and radiation. Sure. Um, it's a, a choice that a, uh, again, a conscious patient is making, um, such as a patient that would sound like a DNR. Similarly, um, a patient that cannot speak for itself, you go to the one that would best be positioned to know what they would want if they could speak for themselves. So I I don't think, I mean, again, that's why you wouldn't call it murder. It's I'm making the choice that the patient would make to the best of my knowledge and with the only consideration being what's best for the patient. Um, Sure. not in any way tied to what's best for me or the other people around the, the life, the patient, whereas in abortion, um, that that's, that's, that's a significant dissimilarity where you're not considering or in a position to speak for the life. Right. I well, I would say that the person seeking abortion generally would know Obviously, nobody can tell the future, but generally would have enough information to know that bringing a baby into the situation they currently were 
was not a good idea and was going to lead to possibly more pain and suffering. Again, 75% of women who had an abortion in 2014 were at the poverty level or it was, I think the stat was 200% of the poverty line or below. And the poverty line is like $17,000 or something like that. I don't, I don't see a huge difference between the information that mother has or excuse me, not a mother necessarily that uh, abortion seeker has available to her and a situation where you get in an accident and you don't have a DNR uh, and your wife has to make the call. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think the big difference would be um, your, your wife, one, it it would be to say that, uh, poverty or adverse situations automatically uh, creates a life not worth living. Um, and, and I think, again, you're asking the the mother or the biological mother of the child to make a decision about somebody else's life. And it's a decision they are completely um, ill-prepared and, and to, to make. You don't know the intents or the wishes of the child. Um, whereas in a husband and wife, you have a much better baseline to make a decision for them based strictly on what they would want for themselves. I, I think there's too many people who, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of anecdotal at this point, which really isn't how you should make a law or a medical decision. But I mean, there are too many people who grew up in poverty, enjoyed their life um, and ultimately got out of poverty, but I just don't think poverty or adverse situations for the mother should be in any way a determining factor for determination of life of another. Um, I, I think that's just a, a bad, uh, well, we're, we're not determining that, but to take that choice away from them, I think is, is the issue. They're determining it for another and that would be the problem. Right. But, it's, but we it's are, we already have situations like that that we do have other people determining it again. I, I don't think it's a perfect one-to-one, but I think it's good enough uh, to show the discrepancy that again, as you said, it's anecdotal, but you would, you would agree that there are also children that are brought in this world that a live very horrible lives. I mean, we have plenty of evidence of that. Uh, and B being in poverty and having kids almost always makes your financial and life situation worse, not better. Uh, there, I mean, you, it might make your fulfillment of life better, but your actual situation, it, it, it'd be a tough sell to tell me that your, your situation gets better when you're at the poverty line and have kids. I don't necessarily think that it's, it's not necessarily the only or best argument, but I think that you're taking away the agency of someone who we have no, there's no argument of whether the mother is alive or not, or a person or not, or has the protections of the constitution or not. That's she clearly does. Whereas the zygote or fetus for lack of a better, depending on where they're at in their pregnancy that is a much more murky area. And again, I, I think I said this in the last episode, you have to make a really compelling argument. And I, 
to, to, to override that. And I think that it's been almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade. And you said that they laid out exactly how to not overturn, but define and, and, and move forward with that argument. And it's been 50 years and they haven't been able to find a good one. I think that's pretty telling that they were given a roadmap on how to make this happen. And it, and it hasn't yet. And I think the only thing that, and you, you kind of, you didn't kind of, you brought it up. And I think that's a tell. They're not waiting for society's definition of life to change. They're waiting for a friendly court because all this has been done in the judicial wing of the law and not through amendments and, you know, the legislative and executive processes. I don't think that, I think that is very telling on how this argument doesn't really hold up to public scrutiny. Uh, they're just waiting out the clock on the on the court, on the Supreme Court specifically. They're not actually making better better or new arguments. Yeah, so, so a couple of things on that. Um, I don't know that that's actually uh, the case. Um, I mean, if you look at, for instance, um, you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that was a 92 decision. Um, the emphasis there was, again, not on the biology or on the medical science of when life begins, which is what uh, again, Roe v. Wade said this would be the thing that makes us overturn it. And even if you look more recently, um, I mean, it was just a few weeks ago when the attorney general from Mississippi, um, who's going to argue before the Supreme Court, um, you know, about uh, Mississippi's law and banning abortion, at no point in his, um, I shouldn't say at no point, in the filing to the court, didn't hint to what I saw at least at the biology of it. It was mainly Roe v. Wade is a bad law, it should be overturned. So if you're continuing to beat that drum, it's not going to get overturned. But if the entire case rests on, here's what we know, and even again, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was 29 years ago. Here's what we have learned since 73 about um, biology and DNA and things of this nature that give us clear and convincing evidence that this prenatal life is in fact life and therefore uh, under the protection of the law. Here's what we've learned since 92, 29 years ago. So I, I think that we've just come a long way in our understanding in our um, specifically the medical science that allows us to determine um, where life starts and, and different details about this life. Um, so I think those are the arguments you made. But going back to your point of, of, of poverty and such, I mean, I, I think in that on that premise, you know, if a mother um, gets to determine without knowing anything about the patient's wishes, if that life is essentially worth preserving, um, that would almost be similar to, let's say, um, an impoverished 40-year-old. And she gets in a wreck and she's in a... a comatose state and there's no next to kin and the doctor after a couple of days said hey she's in a poor she's from a poor community I'm like mm, let's just go ahead and pull the plug and we don't exhaust all medical options because her situation is so adverse that it might be better if she wasn't alive i mean again that would be wrong we both agree that would be wrong because you're not making a choice based off of what's absolutely best for the patient and you have no frame of reference 
to objectively know what the patient desires. I think that's the similar argument for, for a mother carrying prenatal life. I mean, I, I see where you're going with that, but I also don't feel like that's that's the same as the wife or the prospective abortion patient. The The abortion patient absolutely has some information about how the child's life will go. They might not know exactly, but they have more information than that doctor in your scenario does of the patient they've never met before, other than them being poor. Has the uh, mother met the child before? I mean, I know that I get that they can they can speak to the context of the environment. Right. They know way more about the environment the child will be brought up in currently. I don't want to get thrown off by analogies again. I I, I don't think the other one I had was a perfect. Mm-hmm. No, no, there's no good perfect analogy. I, I just, I think the argument that we're waiting on new science, like the definition of life has been around, that biological definition has been around for hundreds of years. This isn't a new, a new thing. We've known about DNA for a long time. This isn't new. Uh, Just real quick, significantly less than we've, we've understood the properties of life and biology. I mean, I think DNA became, I mean, I think the Nobel Prize for DNA was in the early 50s. Right, but so by the early seventies. But we understood we understood what DNA was by the time of nineteen seventy three and Roe v. Wade. Like the what we can do with DNA and the uh, the genetic sequencing of DNA is is newer, yes. But just DNA in general, we knew that a zygote had DNA in it in nineteen seventy three. This isn't that wasn't groundbreaking science twenty years after the Nobel Prize. Speaking truthfully, I don't think that pro-life people are waiting on new medical science to strengthen their argument. Their argument, they're they're using medical science to bolster their maybe religious or uh, other reasons to believe that a life begins at conception. They're using what we know about biology and stuff to, to bolster that, but they're not waiting on science to be like, okay, this is, this is a, this is a human life worth protecting because science is not, that's a philosophical question. That's not a scientific question. The The nature of life, you would say is philosophical and not medical. When human life begins and is worth protecting under the constitution is absolutely a philosophical question. Because in my opinion, if a baby can't live without the mother, if excuse me, if a fetus can't live without the mother, a potential baby, then it's not its own entity. It's still part of the mother, and the mother is the only one who has any any sentience or consciousness that can make decisions based on their own medical and beyond medical, their own situation in life that can make these decisions. They said there's no hierarchy of life, but that's that's the important part of the debate is that the fetus isn't a fully formed life who can survive outside the womb on its own and grow up to make its own decisions uh, until a certain point. There's debate on what that point is. 21 at the, weeks at the earliest, 24 into the second trimester, whatever whatever the current scientific thought is on that. But, but that's 20 weeks is a long time. Again, almost, well, 91.1% of abortions happen at 13 weeks or before. At 13 weeks... That mother, let's just say this, in my view, the mother should be able to remove a fetus from its womb, given that it's her womb and her body, up until, well, actually, theoretically, 
at any point in the pregnancy. And if the baby can survive on its own outside the womb, great. The mother shouldn't want, once that happens, the mother should have no more say about what happens with that baby's life. Uh, if she doesn't want it at that point, if the baby can't survive outside of if the fetus can't survive outside of the womb, that's not the mother's problem anymore. In my opinion. Yeah. A, I didn't mean mother. I mean, we use it in the general sense of the word mother. Yeah. You mean birthing persons. I understand. Yes. Vessel. <laughs> Oh no! So, so I, I think I think there are a couple of problems with um, the viability and, and sentience argument. Um, it is one; it's it's very subjective on when that's relevant. Um, I mean, there are a number of COVID patients who, I mean, by definition, viable is the ability to survive on your own. Um, right. And there are a number of COVID patients who are no longer viable. They're on respirators; they cannot survive on their own. They need right. a friendly and hospitable culture and environment around them and if given that friendly environment that is beneficial to life in their current condition they will in in many cases um survive so i think when you when you again when you speak to okay at conception this is definitely a life and although it's not viable that's not how we make medical decisions for an individual um, viability has never been been uh, considered in any way a sign of life from from a medical biological standpoint, because I'm not of- I'm not talking about a sign of life. At this point, we're talking about forcing somebody to do something with their bodies that they wish not to do. It's not about a sign of life, right? At well, any point in the pregnancy, a woman should be able to remove the fetus from her womb at any point because it's, yeah. it's her it's her body. She shouldn't be forced. Even if that is, even if you consider it another human life, she shouldn't be forced. It, it's such a, we don't have any, any good parallels outside of this situation. So it's hard for me to, to make another analogy, but you shouldn't be forced to be hooked up to another human being to support that human being's life without your permission. Say, say that again. Let's say you and I are in a car. <laughs> say, say, say what you no. said again. Okay. You, you shouldn't, you they shouldn't hook you up to somebody else to save their life without your permission. Let's say just, this is not real life scenario, but just for this analogy, me and you are in a car wreck together. You survive and I'm dying. Basically the government shouldn't be able to hook you up with an IV bag and give your blood to me without your permission to keep, even though it'll keep me alive. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's, you should have a say in that process, even though it'll save my life. And it's say it's the only way that I live. You still, because of your bodily autonomy, the government should have no say in, in what you choose in that situation, even though you would be able to preserve my life. I don't find that again, that analogy would doesn't happen in real life, but that's it's very analogous to the abortion debate. The woman should be able to extricate the fetus at any point during the pregnancy. And if the baby can live, if the fetus can live outside the womb. Great. The mother should should be able to sign the papers away of adoption, whatever. The hospital can uh, put it in uh, neonatal care and put it into the adoption system, whatever. But there should be no forcing of the government on that private individual to to maintain the life of another uh, against her will. I think that's really what it boils down to for me, irregardless. I know that's not a word. I just wanted to use it (laughs) of of what of when you think life begins. 
I, I, I think that's really the crux of my point of view is that the, the woman should never be forced to do something against her will in regards to her own health, uh, based on the life of another. Well, I'll start by saying that if we're ever in a car wreck and, and you need me, you better start being a lot kinder to my sports teams and uh, a lot more agreeable. Uh, yeah, I, 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 the reason that analogy didn't work isn't because there's no technology that I was talking about to keep me alive. It's because you would 100% refuse immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, so... so, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go... I kind of made that that's the thesis of my point. Go ahead and give your, you can respond and give your thesis and we're going to wrap it up because we're already over. Yeah. Uh, but, but go, I'll give you the last word on this subject. Yeah. So, so um, I get your point, you know, I, th- I think ultimately it comes down to um, what is the responsibility of government and the primary responsibility of government is to protect the life, liberty and property of, uh, of the citizenship. Right. So with that in mind, um, we know that I can't use, for instance, my liberty to encroach on your life, liberty or property, because we're two distinct individuals. Likewise, because there's, I believe, indisputable evidence that the fetus is an individual life, another individual life such as the mother does not have the right to exercise her liberty if it encroaches on the life, liberty or property, which doesn't apply in this instance, but to be consistent, if it encroaches on the life, liberty um, of of, uh, the child she carries inside of her. Um, I mean, it's it's not as if um, babies just unexplainably grow inside of a woman. there are choices made and there are um, well-known, perfectly understood uh, potential outcomes to those choices. But at the end of the day, I, I think you, you have to look for objective truth and uh, unfalsifiable evidence for life. And when that is found, um, government has a, a responsibility at that point. Well, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but that was probably the most civil and well done discussion about abortion politics in the United States, maybe ever. We made history. Uh, we, we did it. We, we, <laughs> we accomplished mission accomplished. Uh, yeah, I had a real, that, I mean, this is obviously a real interesting debate. We could talk about it for hours. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have unlimited time, so we'll end it there. I think we hit most of the points that I wanted to hit, and I think this is a good uh, cap on the entire our entire feelings about abortion around the Texas abortion law and just in general. Follow on our Twitter at OVO Deep State. I'm at the rake, but the A is a four on Twitter. Thomas is at Thomas Black underscore 86 on Twitter. Please, if you listen to this episode first, go back, listen to episode eight, and then seven six five four three two one listen to all our episodes uh uh, we might revisit abortion in the future if something major happens in the courts which i am sure it will given uh what's on the docket for our very right-wing supreme court Uh, so we'll probably talk about this in the future maybe not as in-depth but i thought this was a really good and productive conversation and as always thanks for listening